Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today, we're talking about unusual books and literary curiosities. We're joined by Edward Brooke Hitching, who is the author of The Madman's Library, The Strangest Books, Manuscripts and Other Literary Curiosities from History. Edward's book is a beautifully illustrated journey through the fringes of book history. Naturally, the book covers books bound in human skin, but Edward also writes about poisonous books, hoaxes, books written in code, supernatural books, early science and medical books that were none too accurate, numerous books depicting Satan and his army of demons, huge books, tiny books, and books with strange titles. Welcome, Edward. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, what a wonderful book. Why are you drawn to strange books and literary curiosities? Uh, I, th I think there's something quite exciting about um, about curiosities because they are they're off the beaten path of, of history. They're nothing that you learnt about at school. Um, they're not normally what people write about. And so you're discovering characters, eccentrics, people with singular obsessions who traditionally might not have been considered, um, you know, academically or historically significant because of their sort of niche areas and their pursuits. Um, but especially when you gather them together, there's something about, um, you know, assembling a, a group of oddballs and misfits that really brings uh, history alive. When you learn about the things that make people laugh and the things that they love and their peculiar obsessions, you get such a vivid sense of personalities. Um, and so it's quite a fun way of, of, of immersing yourself in the past by um, looking into obscure areas. So you cover a, a quite remarkable range of subjects in, in the book. Is yeah. there one particular area of weirdness that particularly fascinates you? Um, well, I think it, it took about 10 years to piece everything together. And by that time, the chapters had formed themselves because there were these general themes. And the, the theme, uh, especially for collecting books that I really love, um, are literary hoaxes or basically lies in, in practical, um, riffleable form. You know, you can you can sort of um, touch and feel these deceptions and you can read them and wink back at the author because you're you're in on the joke you're in on the deception unlike the readers of the time for which these um these trickster books were designed for so um what was quite a lot of fun was going back and seeing how old this tradition of um of hoaxing with literature was and of course as with anything you discover that goes all the way back to antiquity and, and looking at how you can sort of bend the definition so one of my favorite stories in the book was of a um an ancient greek named alexander of abinatekos who managed to um, form a cult that lasted something like a hundred years after his death worshipping a snake deity that he invented called Glycon. And he did it all by um, engraved, creating his own tablets, um, proclaiming the existence of this god Glycon, burying them shallowly in a, in a temple that he knew people would um, stumble across. Um, and when they were discovered, he arrived in prophet's robes and declared himself the earthly 
um, communication device of, of glycon and he ruled this cult and the best part of all um, is the the detail that he he did this with uh, basically a, a snake a hand puppet um, which was operated by horse hairs the little mouth going up and down um, and so he would take questions from his followers but he'd secretly read their questions beforehand um, and so he would give these proclamations as relayed from um, glycon. So, and and, and it, it carries on today because in 1995 in Romania they were excavating a train station and they found this marble snake statue um, that was part of this cult worship. So you can you can go all the way back to then. You can go to um, maybe 1702 to a gentleman named George Salmanazar who turned up in London proclaiming himself to be the first Taiwanese man to ever made it to Europe. This despite the fact he was Caucasian, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, likely spoke with a thick French accent, but he was a brilliant wit, a brilliant mind, and he was never proven to be a fraud. But his book was published, and historical and geographical description of Formosa, and it's a wonderful thing to have on the shelf because it, it has illustrations that he's completely made up, these details of his homeland about um, child sacrifice and devil altars and things like that. So for me, <laughs> literary hoax is a great to collect because, quite frankly, not a lot of people are, are also collecting them, so they're relatively cheap as well. So some of the things that struck me about those hoaxes is the planning that went into them. So um, I forget the name of the title, but the one from the 70s where a group of quite established writers set out to prove that sex can sell literary fiction. Yeah, it, it was in San Francisco. A group of journalists became exasperated with the success of um, sort of trash novel, uh, you know, the 60s equivalent of um, Fifty Shades of Grey, so Valley of the Dolls, things like that. And so they spent a week, they teamed up and said, well, we'll spend a week each writing a chapter of the worst, trashiest sex novel um, ever made to see what, see what would happen. And obviously people are going to know we're joking, but let's see what happens. They sold 20,000 copies in the first week. They sold something like 100,000. I mean, it was a smash best hit. Um, the movie rights were optioned to their utter horror. No one called them on it. Um, and the quote I end up um, end the description in the book on is, is just the, the lead journalist saying, you know, America, sometimes I worry about you. We all worry about America, I can assure you that. Um, and there's another one. Uh, David Bowie was involved in a literary hoax, I believe, too. Well, that the, was, a, yeah, the, uh, the Nat Tate hoax. Um, yeah. A completely invented artist um, that he helped plan the uh, and host the um, the sort of public debut of these, these previously unknown works. Um, but it, it turned out that Nat Tate was actually a combination of National Gallery and Tate Gallery. Um, and it was purely to poke fun at um, the art establishment and how people um, have a tendency to swallow whatever they're given. Right. Um, that's usually what you find as a, as a sort of motive behind these hoaxes is to, is to satirise a particular vogue of the time. Okay, let's talk about one or two of the examples. Uh, so Shadows from the Walls of Death sounds like a detective novel, but it's a collection of wallpapers containing arsenic. Can you uh, elaborate a little bit more about this deadly book? Yes, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful book. Um, and I have two full page images from it in the book of uh, samples of wallpaper with this very um, um, distinctive uh, green tinged wallpaper, beautiful designs. But it was produced in 1874 um, as a sort of public 
a public awareness project. Um, I think over something like over 100 copies were distributed in America by the State Board of Health in Michigan to public libraries um, just to wear, raise awareness of poisonous wallpaper, of wallpaper made with arsenic. Um, and so the bizarre thing is that, you know, in, in, in the aim of um, public safety, these incredibly deadly books were distributed across America. But um, as I'm sure people are aware, you know, arsenic bindings uh, weren't just in, in fiction of Umberto Eco, but, um, but were a, uh, I think they were used as a sort of cost-cutting use of old manuscript vellum by, by binders to try and hide their joins and rough, you know, the, the Harlequin approach to um, di using different materials. They, they slapped them with this um, green paint that was rich in arsenic that um, apparently was also a very um, handy tool at, at pest control, keeping rodents away from books as well. Blimey. Um, okay, you've got another chapter on religious books, and I was really struck by all the colourful representations of the devil. Um, I was thinking it was almost as if the writers had been instructed to scare the living daylights out of people four or five hundred years ago. Absolutely. I think that's exactly what they were doing uh, in the same way that, you know, gargoyles, while they served a practical purpose of channeling water off the roof, also served to, you know, say, um, seek shelter in, in inside the church. With Christianity, you'll be safe from these monsters. And that's exactly what manuscript artists were working with. You know, that's why you have um, visual traditions like the Hellmouth, which sort of took the more bestial scant references in the Bible um, about about hell and the beasts, the pit, the fiery pit, and created this enormous moor, this gaping moor, um, with the angels locking access away to it. But but um, I've got several examples in the book of these hell mouths, uh, medieval de depictions of, of tormented souls twisting in agony um, inside um, what is sometimes described as the devil's own mouth but but obviously this this tactic of of scaring the living daylights out of people to turn them towards christianity was was the most sort of persuasive tool they had it matched very well with the sort of fire and brimstone um sermons of preachers um and it's actually what what i've, I've my, the next book i've got coming out in october what i was writing about it's called the devil's atlas about the different um forms of geography and architecture and physical aspects and references to do with different heavens and hells and different cultures. And this is obviously across the board, a common um, um, tradition uh, to be as terrifying as possible. So obviously it's a lot of fun trying to find the scariest ones and put them all in a book together. Right. Um, science, early science and uh, medical and anatomy books. Um, lots of incredible images in the book. Um, Sometimes they're almost comic, but it's also perhaps a little sad as well. But you've got to think that early doctors and surgeons were probably killing as many people as they saved when you look at the the images and the cures that were being offered in these early books. Yeah, I mean, and like you say, it's a sort of bittersweet combination of emotions when you're dealing, when you're exploring a time where technically everything was possible because no one understood how anything was possible. Um, and what's so surprising um, when you sort of study these early authoritative medical and scientific texts is, is how long that authority lasted based on ancient writings, um, which were, you know, to, to our modern uh, knowledge, completely clueless 
about the workings of the human body and um, you know micro microorganisms and things like that. So, for example, Gale, the writings of Galen, which really lasted into the 16th century, is almost unquestioned until Vesalius um, comes onto the scene. Um, Galen's theories range from the you know the famous four humors of the human body, but also his his um, claim that you know blood was created by the liver and and pumped around in two different bloodstreams that that hair was um, excreted from the body um, as a sort of form of pollution. It was made of soot generated by the the, the heat of our blood, and that um, you could tell the the heat level of different people based on their hair color. All these kinds of things, and you know he he goes into huge detail about the human body, and it was based entirely on his own. Um, examinations um, not of the human body which he wasn't allowed to do but of of pigs of, of macaques and and he had to work with the assumption that, that the human anatomy was essentially the same um, and so you combine texts like that which are attempting to be as scientific as possible with the knowledge they had at the time with things like leech books from maybe the 10th century such as Ball's leech book in the in the British Library which is dated to about 925, which is half medical, half magical. I mean, there are charms for keeping away dwarfs at night who were blamed for creating um, um, convulsions and what we know is epilepsy now. Um, but and, and then there's also the, the, the group of doctors who are now informally known as the Piss Prophets um, from the 12th century who um, offered a very popular alternative to having your side burnt with a hot poker to try and burn the humours out of you. These these doctors said, Don't, we're not going to do anything as invasive as that. All we're going to do is just taste your urine, examine the smell of it, the sight of it, um, and diagnose everything purely from your the colour of your urine using these colour charts. Um, so it's a fascinating world to, to immerse yourself in. That's possibly the worst job in the world. Yes, and even now I feel bad saying the word immerse right next to piss profits. It just doesn't sound right, does it? No, no. Um, so I had no idea that uh, somebody released a Mark Twain book uh, several years after Twain's death, after getting the book passed through to them via a Ouija board. Um, I thought that was funny. Yeah, I think um, it's funny. I mean, obviously, I knew about automatic writing. I knew that obviously people people claim to have channeled particular writers, but I had no idea how serious catalogues take it. So there's a, there's the the go-to guide is for libraries is called Essential Cataloging: The Basics, um, which is followed by the British Library, the American Librarian Association. But the rules in this book state that even if a book is produced by an author post mortem. Um, it still has to be catalogued under that author's name, even if it were so with a bracket of assisted by and then the medium. So, for example, Shakespeare's last work was not technically The Two Noble Kinsmen, but For Jesus's Sake, um, which, really, which he managed to write in 1920. Um, and then uh, Charles Dickens, I think, uh, reached out to a, an American writer in Vermont to dictate the second half of uh, his story of uh, Edwin Drood, um, but alas, that was in 18, yeah, 1870, but uh, a callous world paid little attention. But it is fascinating how far people go. I mean, there was uh, a, a lady who really uh, went for gold, uh, Olive Pettis, um, produced the autobiography of uh, by Jesus of Nazareth in 1884. Um, and why not? I mean, who, who can technically prove you wrong? 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's an incredibly detailed book. How on earth did you go about researching all of these strange books and manuscripts? Um, my dad was a rare book dealer. I grew up in a rare book shop um, just outside London in England. Um, and even though he specialised in British travel and exploration, as a dealer, um, everything comes through your doors and a huge amount of unique material. Um, and as I, I, you know, as you're growing up, you're very, you're not very interested in what your parents do for a living. You're not very impressed by it as a, as a child, as a teenager. But it's the strange things that really catch your eye, and it's obviously that's what dealers uh, are very good at um, doing um, as a sort of sales tactic is collecting these great stories and particularly notable objects. And so it just, it was just that's what caught my eye. Strange. I think the first odd book I ever saw that I remember of his was something called Eskimo Vocabulary, which was produced in about 1850, I think. And it was um, to assist Arctic explorers. I think they were searching for Franklin. Um, and it was just vocabulary guide, but it was it was totally made up as total nonsense. Um, but what's so what's so interesting to read um, um, in it is the choice of phrases, because they're all incredibly bleak and dramatic. So instead of, hello, how are you? We are English. It's things like, um, how do I prize the bear off his leg and things like this? And how do I stop the bleeding? And um, So it's not a it's not a hilarious example of a curiosity, but it is an example of um, a very odd, um, not very well known book that completely transports you um, into this particular period of history. Um, so gathering those that I've remembered and then talking to dealers, going to auctions, going to rare book fairs, which is always a lot of fun, and then just following up anecdotes, people half remembering things and um, mentioning to um, a dealer at Mags Brothers named Ali, Ali Rao, you know, I'm looking for a book written in blood. And she's, oh, we happen to, we happen to have one the other day. We had a record of a, a shipwreck and the fate of the Blendon Hall. And the subtitle of that is written entirely in the blood of the penguin, because that's all the captain had at his disposal. He had a writing desk, he had newspaper and a pen, but he had no ink. So he had to make use of what was around him. Goodness, yeah, and you tell us also about the um, the Quran written in Saddam Hussein's blood, which is yeah. uh, quite ominous. It, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary book, isn't it? Um, and and not particularly well known, I don't think, because it, it when when I first came across it, I, I, it sounded vaguely familiar, but I thought that must be made up. Um, and then looking into it, I found a, a photograph of it on on display um, in Baghdad. But then after the fall of Baghdad, after it had been exhibited um, um, in, uh, to, to, to honor Saddam, that was, that was why he had it commissioned. It was written in something like 50 pints of his own blood over two years, which supposedly would have made him extremely anemic. So who knows how, how much veracity there is to the story. But it's, it's, an, it's an extremely beautiful work. But the other problem um, that its existence creates is that it's completely um, forbidden to create to create a Quran using blood but it's also forbidden to destroy a Quran so it's a perpetual dilemma to its curators they don't know what to do with it so apparently it's locked up in an archive um, beneath the streets of Baghdad. Right um, so two of my favorite examples from your book that I'd, I'd never heard of was the the Land Rover book which was edible so if you're stuck in the desert, you could read yeah. it. And then yeah. I also liked the cheese slice book, which is the yeah. book made up of what? Ten slices of processed cheese. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, the Land Rover book was made for their, um, I think their Dubai um, Saudi clients. Anyone, if you if your car happened to break down in the desert um, and you needed to survive or you needed to make your way, trudge your way home, it was a very practical guide. It is a very practical guide to um, navigating by stars and it's, it's sort of metal spiral of the spine can be used to skewer and cook meat with. But if all else fails and you're really quite desperate and hunger is um, overtaking you, then um, then it apparently has the same kind of calorific value, the actual pages of the book, um, as, a, as a cheeseburger. So you can just munch on the book itself. And so, yeah, obviously you start thinking, OK, if that if that's on a shelf in this madman's library, what is on the shelf next to it? Um, and that's when I came across Ben Denzer, this New York publisher um, who creates bizarre, bizarre books made from sugar packets or or in this case, yeah, um, uh, slices of American cheese. And they, they sell very well. Um, but the only problem with the cheese book, obviously, is it's quite perishable. So um, I remember speaking to one librarian and asking how, how it was. And the first thing she mentioned is that she, she was uh, um, lactose intolerant. But she said it's, um, it's, it's shelf stable, but we'll see how long that lasts. So Lord knows how well they have to store it. Yeah. Um... So at the end, you touch on uh, books, but probably quite serious books, but have strange titles. Um, this is an area close to my heart. Um, yeah, what's the what's the most amusing, weird book title in your opinion? I think um, I, I think a lot. Whenever you see, whenever there's been an article or a book on strange titles, normally they're sort of early twentieth century and and later. And I wanted to go back further and see, you know, um, how how far back you could trace this tradition and they're all over the place i think some of my favorite i mean there's a there's a there was a bizarre work called sunbeams may be extracted from cucumbers but the process is tedious that's from 1799 um i remember i wrote a book called fox tossing about extinct sports looking for ways our ancestors entertain themselves and I came across a book in the british library called how to ride a velocipede which is a one-wheeled vehicle um in this book uh, how to ride a velocipede straddle a saddle then paddle and skedaddle um that's from 1869 by joseph uh, bottomley um but so i mean you can randomly i think i'm um, looking at my shelf there's uh, an irishman's difficulties with the dutch language which just always makes me burst out la laughing that's from 1912 um, and I love very stubborn, um, you know, sort of early equivalents of anti-vaxxers. You know, does the earth rotate? No, that's from 1919. Um, uh, a very strange one called The Jewish Japanese Sex and Cookbook and How to Raise Wolves. That's all one title. That's from 1972. Um, there's a Japanese book. Uh, it's the title is translated to How to Goodbye Depression If You Constrict Anus a Hundred Times Every Day. Malarkey or Effective Way? Um, but I think in terms of modern modern authors who really excel at cracking out some great titles, there's a, there's a self-published uh, gentleman named, a pseudonymous uh, gentleman named Chuck Tingle. And I think one of my favourites of his of these sort of trashy erotic novels is Open Wide, The Handsome Sabretooth Dentist, who is also a ghost. By Chuck Tingle, which in itself is uh, funny. Exactly. He, he's he's yeah. a genius. Yes, indeed. All right. Uh, OK, Edward. Uh, finally, what book or books are you currently reading? Uh, I'm reading a lot of. Uh, well, I, I work for a, a TV show in Britain called um, QI, which is uh, about uh, just a sort of comedy show, but quiz show about 
um, strange facts from science and history. So my reading list is completely bizarre. At the moment, I'm reading a book um, from 1930 on heart burial um, and the traditions of um, various historical characters who were buried completely separately from their hearts. Um, so not things I can really talk to people about in the pub. Well, I'm, I'm going through one of my favourite non-fiction books ever, which is by William Donaldson, called Rogues, Villains and Eccentrics, which is a, 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 a just such a densely packed, um, uh, infinitely funny um, catalogue of uh, really bizarre criminals and eccentrics from from British history, and you, you will you will never regret buying a copy of that. Is especially if you keep it by your loo, um, it's perfect to dip in and out to. Um, and then at the moment, I'm just um, reading uh, the history of the devil by Peter Stanford, which is um, which is fascinating. Just just examining how how that um, that sort of personification of evil, how common it is across cultures. So again, that sounds pretty intense, but um, but it's a lot of fun. Heart burial. That is a thing. You are deliberately yes. choose to be buried separate to your heart. Is that correct? Yes, it's it's in that sort of tradition of um, you know relics. It was it, a lot of um, English uh, members of royalty um, had their hearts preserved as you know mementos or presented to loved ones. Um, and also, you know, if you were if you maybe by orders of state had to be buried in England, but your figurative heart was with your birthplace in Ireland, then that's where your literal heart went. I see. I mm. see. Weird, but in some ways sensible. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. another Tuesday, really. Yeah. All right. OK. Uh, heart burial. That's a, a good point to end for us today. <laughs> um, right. That's all we have time for. Uh, thank you so much to Edward Brooke Hitchin for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Edward is the author of The Madman's Library, The Strangest Books, Manuscripts and Other Literary Curiosities from History. Thanks for listening. I'm Richard Davis and you've been listening to an Abe Books podcast and we'll see you all again soon.